0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode six of the Downrange Podcast. I am Cody, your host. We have an awesome episode for you guys today. Today's story is about service to your country. It's about making hard decisions in your life. It's about literally giving up a limb in order to survive and improve your quality of life. It's about overcoming extreme obstacles through adversity. It's about mental health and suicide, and deciding to take the higher road and seek help even though everything in your core tells you not to. It's about survival, triumph, and ultimately coming through the other end and being a role model for others to not only look up to, but to learn from. I am so happy and honored to bring you Mike Brown's story today. Mike Brown served in the British military the Royal Artillery, all the way up until a fluke accident where he broke his leg. A severe infection took hold. He battled it for over two years, completely bedridden at times, until he made the ultimate decision to have his leg amputated so he could have the quality of life that he deserved. This is his story. Enjoy.
1: I was determined to, to walk into the church and I did it. That was a week later. The, that was my
0: the shock on people's faces. I'm sure. Yeah, that it was, it was like, it was pretty
1: cool. Um, but that just shows how powerful the mind is. I think, you know, like if you can, if you're going to do something, do it with all your best of your ability. Uh, that's sort of been my philosophy through life. If I'm going to do something, I'll try and do it the best I can. And I think that, that helped me through my recovery. That sort of attitude. Cause, I don't know you, you 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 sort of got the same sort of mindset I think. You can either sit at home and feel sorry for yourself or you can get on and make some of it of the of the situation you're in and I chose the latter you know so it's the the best of a bad situation.
0: Could not be more excited to sit down and talk to a fellow veteran. Somebody who is not just super into golf, but is a true expert at his craft, professional golfer, British military veteran, Mr. Mike Brown.
1: How you doing, mate? Yeah, I'm really good, thank you. Uh, Just getting back over to the UK after being in America has just uh, wiped me out a little bit, but we're back on track now.
0: Jet lag worse coming to this side. Trying to get settled in or returning home? For me, it's coming
1: back from America because um, we're, we're five hours ahead of you, I think. Yeah, five hours ahead of you. So I always get it coming back this way. There's some people that get it going the other way. But for me, coming home is is the worst one. It probably gets me.
0: It's crazy how like time travel works. If you're if you're moving back on the yeah. clock for some reason, mentally and physically, you're like, oh, my body's okay. We're actually like gaining gaining hours on life it's here. Crazy, yeah. And then as soon as you go east for us, so for you, you're you know returning yeah. home, it just takes everything out of you. I don't know how
1: true it is, but I I, I heard somewhere before that for every hour you travel, it takes a day to recover. But that just sounds mad to me. But it, it is actually quite true because I'm only just recovering now, so it's like five days and five hours, and to just today, I actually feel all right. It's mad. I don't know how true it is or whether it's just a placebo. But I believe. Yeah, it. I mean, both of us have done enough traveling to realize how bad jet lag is. Uh, That's it gets,
0: very yeah, true. Yeah, getcha. All right, so let's see. Forty-three years old. Let's go all the way back to the beginning where did where mike where where were you born at what was kind of your upbringing like and let's get us started there so
1: yeah uh i'm actually a somerset born and bred lad so um i was born in a place called taunton in somerset which is just a, a a place with with one of the main hospitals here um and yeah that was where i pretty much grew up i went to to school in a place called street which funny enough Life just turned upside down for me, and I've just actually moved back after 23 years away. Um, which yeah, I'm just slowly getting used to because the pace of life coming from big cities and military life coming back here is very sleepy, so it's uh, it's pretty nice just to not have lots of busyness around me, but yeah, so I grew up here. Um, uh, my dad, when I was born, owned a motorcycle shop, that's where I became fascinated by motorbikes so motorbikes was my sport growing up um i was a motocross rider for pretty much all my life so yeah that was where everything began for me really
0: so mom dad any brothers sisters
1: yeah i've got um there's six of us all together all different walks of life different different ages i'm the i'm the youngest in the family so there's a big gap between me and my next brother yeah so my next brother to me sadly passed away two years ago nearly so yeah, he was the next one to me. Um, that was just as coronavirus started coming in. So, but he wasn't—he wasn't ill anyway. Um, very well anyway. So that was, you know, it was. He had diabetes, and it just sort of took its toll on him. Um, so yeah, that was that was a pretty much at the start of coronavirus that we lost him. So yeah, that now there's obviously five of us. I got two sisters and two brothers. Uh, yeah, mum and dad—they've been together. They eloped to Gretna Green, believe it or not, when they were 16 years old. Um, they're now seventy six, and they've never been apart. It's a pretty cool story, I think.
0: Yeah, it seems like it's working out pretty good for them.
1: Yeah, definitely. they uh, they they struggled through this lockdown, um, just not seeing family, and as everyone did, you know, it was it was struggle right. for. everyone. They're making the trying to make the most of it now, and you know, get to see the grandkids and all that stuff again. So yeah, they're loving it.
0: So what you, you said, you grew up with like motorbikes and stuff like that.
1: I was just a a motocross freak that's all I did so I got my first bike when I was two years old that's how ingrained it is in me I could probably ride a bike before I could walk um yeah that's uh yeah I just got that from my dad and got got that lifestyle of of the motocross and then I didn't start racing until I was later on in life so I started racing when I was I think 10 years old maybe 11 but yeah it was that was my life so but I gave up football. I had trials for like one of the big local teams around here, but I wasn't interested in it to to do that. I just wanted to do motocross, and that that was that was pretty much my life from then on, really, till so I joined the military
0: at age 18, 19. Sorry. So growing up was like the military. Did it run in your family? Did people serve not or? not not per
1: se, but both my grandads were serving. Um, had served in the military. So my 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 father's father. He was in the Royal Marines. He ended up being head of the Royal Marines band. Um, And my other granddad was actually Royal Artillery, which I followed too. Um, So, yeah, he was in the war, in the artillery. Um, So, yeah, that was pretty much the only military that was sort of in my family at that time.
0: What was the decision to join the military for you? So I wanted,
1: believe it or not, I wanted to be a physical education teacher. So that that was what I wanted to do. I love sport and I love fitness all my life. And where I'm from, literally we've got one school for miles and miles around and there was obviously no job. So that's what I wanted to do. I went into the military and yeah, just went from there really. That that was sort of a stepping stone for me to to find to, you know, find where I wanted to be in life.
0: I'm very familiar with the US military. Have no yeah. real clue outside of a couple of units that we've deployed with and worked overseas hand in hand yeah. on on the, you know, UK side, but what is it like enlisting, I'm guessing? Do you get to pick the the branch of service? Do you get to pick the job that you do? Kind of walk me through how it works.
1: Yeah, so basically how we do it is we get recruiting centers. So we literally, you can walk in off the street, pick which core you want. Obviously, there's certain jobs you have to have certain education for. But, but yeah, it's pretty much walk in, sign up, and away you go. You know, if you're if that if you're that way inclined, and you know you you want to represent your country and be do something to be very proud of for the rest of your life, then you know it's such a great job to to have. So you
0: obviously picked Royal Artillery. It wasn't
1: my first pick. I wanted to be Remy. I wanted to be a re- um, Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineer because my my dad was. That's that was the motorbike thing again. I right. just wanted to do all that, but. There was actually, when I signed up, there was actually nothing in the remi whatsoever that sort of tweaked me. And then I seen, you know, my granddad was artillery. So that's pretty much where I went. And within the artillery, there was so many jobs possible. It was, you could either go in as, you know, on the guns or um, FST, which which back then was was totally different. But yeah, that's pretty much where we went.
0: When did you sign up? So I signed
1: up pretty much July 98. I was a young kid, didn't have a clue what was going on, didn't really have a clue about about life in general, you know, just went in there, want to do this, that, and the other, got this. And then, yeah, I think the dude, why, the reason why I was artillery was the actual dude in the in the recruiting center was artillery. And he yeah, just sold there it. There you go. Know, okay.
0: you know how it is? Now, now we got to where we're finally at. This happens. Yeah. <laughs> Everywhere. And it doesn't matter who I talk to. It's whatever your recruiter was or whatever he's pushing, he probably 100%. he probably has slots that he needs to fill. That's where you're going to end up. He sold at me straight away because he, he said, what do you want to do? I said, right, I want
1: to be a PE teacher, physical education teacher. Right. Blah, blah, blah. But if you do this, you'll have a trade. You do this, you'll have this. And then in the long run, you can do PT core. But the artillery is the way. And I was like, get me in. That was it. All right, perfect. Uh, yeah. So I, has it was
0: nothing, like nothing to do with being a physical education teacher.
1: Not at all. Not at all. Couldn't be farther from the truth. <laughs> but uh but yeah, I went in, I did all, obviously past basic training, went in, did my trade training. So I was in a, what they call it, I was called what they call an opiac back in the day. That was before we transferred over to FST. FST means Fast Sport team. Okay. So it's a fast sport tactician. It's basically a laser targeter. Uh, which is you know that's what it but so yeah we had loads of different roles um and then obviously being the the sports side of thing i mean there wasn't nothing that i didn't do sport wise and then you know in in the actual artillery it was sport was massive i didn't realize how sport is an actual massive entity in in the military and i was like this is heaven you know i was i was able to do anything and everything that i wanted to do sport wise um so I went in and then yeah I got into then I got picked to do to represent tri service for motorbike riding. Um so yeah my yes. life had re- back, my re- my life had reversed back to motocross um and enduro riding and and teaching as well I was teaching motocross um within the military as teaching like
0: you know it was pretty cool. Wait, what do you, what do you mean teaching motocross? So
1: we were teaching we were t- we I was running like Courses for people to learn to ride off-road. Okay. Um, so yeah, because back in the day in the artillery, it was it was actually they used to send people off on bikes to you know find tracks for for, for armor to come in. So back in the day, that's what they used to do, and you know, it was still quite a big thing in the in the in the army over here at that time. So um, I mean, they had we got display troops, we got you know everything like that. So
0: the reconnaissance side of it, what you're saying is that. Yeah whoever exactly. whoever's pulling recce on it they're going to go out and find the the nearest or or best yeah. spot to move these heavy guns in from or following tracks of enemy gun positions whatever it is
1: exactly that so um yeah i thought that was pretty cool so i did that bike ride and stuff so yeah it was it was quite like a, a, a roll reverse back to my old days of motocross doing british and competing at that level you know so i was able to go, go back teach yeah And this is all
0: still like prior to 2001, I'm guessing?
1: Yeah, yeah, this was all, well, this was at the time, and then it was obviously afterwards before everything, when that kicked off, you know, so yeah, it's pretty cool.
0: What was it like, I guess, being in the military prior to war? I mean, yeah. I, I talked to a, a bunch of like guys that I grew <laughs> up in the, in the military that it was completely different. You know, it was focused yeah. pr- primarily just on training and, and weird for us counter Russia or China stuff. It, ne- yeah. it was not about terrorism or Middle East or anything really like that. And then obviously that whole, everything changed.
1: Yeah. So obviously pre nine 11 for you guys, um, all we had was sort of NATO tours, really. You know, we had Bosnia, Kosovo, Northern Ireland, and then obviously in 2000, Sierra Leone, when our Royal Marines and 29 Commando and the Paros all went in. Um, and that's pretty much it. And then obviously 9 11 happened, and then the world changed forever. What did it change for you? It just it was not the, not the personal side of stuff for the British, but it was the personal ally. Obviously, you're big allies to us. So um, those two that went to Iraq sort of seen the whole outfall of, of 9-11, I suppose. But but yes, seeing as, like, you... Come, did, you, So what year did you join? Did you come straight in as war, basically?
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I joined at a time of war. I knew exactly what I was signing up for. I knew what I wanted, and that was to go fight. Yeah. It wasn't about... Yeah the job or getting training to do anything afterwards it was yeah. i wanted to pick go- a job that i knew i could do overseas to
1: make a difference yeah and make the, try and make things right i suppose but yeah that it was i suppose it was a different perspective of british forces to american forces yeah so i can imagine well i can't imagine how how it was for you guys back then but for us it was sort of totally you know, alien, because that's not what we prepared for in 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 that sort of stuff, you know. But yeah, you've got the guys that went out there and stuff like that. You know, must have been a game changer for for you guys to have people there as well.
0: Yeah, it's weird thinking back. Like you know, we're 20th anniversary of Operation you know Rhino. So our airborne assault into Afghanistan was last week. And thinking back of 20 years, a war in Afghanistan, and kind of early this summer, how everything shook out there at the end and then thinking about Iraq and then coming out of Iraq and then back into Iraq and then into Syria and kind of everything in the Middle East and looking back at like the last 20 years of my life and what has changed and really to be completely honest, what's still the same. And you know, when you look at it, that side of it is, it's kind of sad to think about, but anyway, so You join, you're teaching motocross stuff.
1: It's what is my main job and stuff like that. You know, Uh, that was sort of uh, that was sort of a a secondary thing, and then obviously, uh, so then obviously going through 2011, broke my leg again, and yeah, went from there. Really,
0: you're slowly progressing through the ranks in the military.
1: I got to full screw Um, because this sort of job I was in. I don't know what you guys call it, but it was pretty much dead man's shoes. We were on a like a black economy list. So unless someone moved on, you didn't really get anywhere, if that makes sense. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so that's pretty much what we were the role we were in. And then, yeah, so 2011 happened and October 17th at around 11.45 in the morning. My life changed
0: forever. So what happened?
1: So it was we were down a place called Longmore, and I broke I broke my leg. Basically, that was pretty much the way it went. You know, I thought I'd be back going in six eight weeks. Got uh, got got sent off to hospital. Got cassetvact straight there. Didn't think nothing of it at the time. And then I was in hospital for three weeks, and then nothing had happened. I was still in a, a frame. So I went into a thing called an X-Fix, which is basically, it was just a pole running down my leg to get together, basically. And then, yeah, that was pretty much the start of the end of that life as I knew, really, because they told me I had an infection and I, they didn't know where I caught it from, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I didn't know what to do. I was off my head so much on drugs. I didn't know where I was and then ended up staying in hospital for five months, having 24 operations losing my knee which which was a game changer in itself um so what they did was i don't know if you've ever heard of a thing called an alizaroth frame so if you could imagine a five bicycle wheels going down my leg i had them so it's 58 wires going through my leg so what i had to do was where they took my my knee out they had to close that to that shape and then they broke my um tibia uh, yeah tibia and fibula, so they stretched it So I had to close my knee seven centimeters um, and then grow seven centimeters in my tibia fibia. But in hindsight now, it didn't work. So basically, if you can imagine, my tibia fibia should have gone directly square, but they did that and they made a chicane. So they took me out of the frame. And then as soon as I stood on it, my leg snapped again. Uh, Yeah. And then, yeah, that was... That was, they put me in cast for a couple of days and I sat down with my surgeon. Um, this was on May the 1st, 2013. And then he said to me, right, he says, Mr. Brown, I want to put you back in a, a frame that you've been in for two years. I was like, no, I'm not a chance going back in that. And I said to him, like, what's my option? And he said, well, amputate um, through the knee. I said, right, get it done. And it was literally that quick.
0: Well, uh, I mean, where where do you, where do you come up with that decision?
1: <laughs> well, and this this is everyone's like says that how did you make it that quick? But I'd lived for two years with this cage on my leg, with a straight straight knee basically, and it's the pain and all that is irre Well, it, it's there because it was horrendous, but that was sort of irrelevant to the way of quality of life I'd have had. You know, I couldn't. I couldn't walk upstairs. I couldn't walk downstairs. I couldn't sit in a car. I couldn't go on a train. I couldn't go on a bus. I couldn't go on a plane. I couldn't go to the cinema. And it's all these things that I'd found out over that two years that I wouldn't be able to do. And, you know, it was, it was for me, quality of life. I mean, I'd, I'd have had to take painkillers for the rest of my life. I mean, I can run now. I can ride a bike. I went back motocrossing as well with one leg, believe it or not. So so I just started to learn to walk on my prosthetic leg.
0: Hold on real quick, we'll get we'll get to that. <laughs> so did you have through this process and you, you, yeah. the struggles with the leg and trying to get it getting it to heal and what Mike was was signaling to me when he was talking is that the, that the bones when they took the knee out that basically the tibia and fibia were supposed to grow back flush or, or in line with the lower part of the leg. And what ended up happening is that they grew in at an angle. So when Mike put weight on it, is that because of the angle and them not growing square like they were supposed to, that it broke under the weight. But during this time and the the two years, three years of struggles that you had going on with it, was there mentors or people in your life that had discussed amputating your leg and kind of described what the quality of life could be for you or is this just something that you came up with on your own
1: yeah I, I sort of i found it out myself i mean back in i know it's not that long ago but it is quite a long time ago it, in terms of how far an advancement prosthetics are now um no one was when i had it amputated no one was there to tell me that you know it's going to be all right it's, it's um, gonna be sort of you're gonna have a good life but prior to that I was obviously in this cage and I had that again I found that thing that no one was there to say you know life's gonna be all right you're gonna you're gonna survive you're gonna do stuff and this is where the the mental health side of things I mean because you know I was such an active soldier I was such an active sports person that everything just came to a stop and like I wasn't okay with that at that particular time. You know, I wasn't. I couldn't adjust to being like this anymore. And you know, I I didn't feel any need to be alive anymore. If that makes sense.
0: You lived your life up until that point as like the next thing, the next task, the next sport, yeah. the next activity that you're going to do, to yeah. being bedridden for such a long time. And then I'm sure once you got out of the hospital for a little bit and were able to. Kind of do things on your own, but a new way of life with, by all never terms, the, a, a bum leg. Like you, you literally had nothing else to build on to build towards.
1: No, I, I couldn't see a light at the end of the tunnel. There was nothing there for me, you know. And you know, I, I went into hospital as like a fifteen stone unit. I was training. I was doing everything a soldier should do every day, and then I come out at an eight stone twiglet. You know, and it's yes. like, so yeah, there was sort of a time when I, it, I don't know whether it was mental health, or it was the tablets I was taking, or anything like that, you know, but I just found my, you know, I was useless to myself, and that wasn't a good place to be, so I was at a very dark edge.
0: In hindsight... How long were you in that for? Um,
1: A good year, a good year, I was, you know, I never left the house for six months.
0: Were I you just living did... by yourself, or did you have...
1: I actually went back to live with my parents when I first got out, but I was obviously live. I was living with my my partner at the time, right? Um, so but yeah, we we split up. She couldn't handle the way things had gone. And that's you were her, with so. her
0: prior to the injury.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So see, every-
0: that's that's what a lot of people don't get is that, you know, it's really hard. For you know, not just the person that that's injured to transition their life, but the person that they're with, spending their life with. And some people, it's a lot to adapt to. It's a lot to be that constant supporter because all of a sudden, like the person that you're doing everything in your life with, now becomes basically a caretaker. Yeah, exactly. And
1: you know, it was people forget about partners, and you know that that's uh, they're the biggest key. I think is to that can aid recovery and the people that stand by people i I take my hat off you know it's it's well kudos to them you know but um but yeah that was that was pretty much that
0: so not a lot of mentors you had a you had a good support system in your family and i'm sure people your buddies in the military and and everything else like that yeah ultimately moving up to and, and moving through some very very dark times where you think that there's no if this is the way of life that I'm going to live from now on I don't want to live this life
1: yeah there was definitely a time and I can't remember what what how long into it I was but I can remember just sitting on my bed and just I didn't know why I just started crying and I didn't stop crying for three days and I didn't know why and you know I'm not proud of it etc etc but I tried to jump out of a out of the window because I was like, this just isn't me. And that's what I said. I don't know whether it's the tablets or the mental state I was in or what. But in hindsight, I couldn't get out the window because my frame wouldn't get out. <laughs> so Jeez. in hindsight, but then again, my leg saved me. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just laughed about, about that thing. And then, you know, I got back in, and I actually started laughing to myself and thinking, man, what are you doing? Go see someone. And that was that was sort of the time when I knew I had to go and see someone. As about what was going on because you know you know what it's like being a soldier back in them days mental health wasn't a thing it was just you know get on with it and that's what we did so yeah i went seeing someone and yeah we went from there really
0: you started therapy and obviously yeah. it created yeah. a a tremendous influence on not only your outlook but decisions that you're making in your life
1: yeah 100 percent. i sat down with I didn't really say a lot the first session i think i just sat there and cried and yeah I,
0: it's hard I like, man
1: yeah and i nope. didn't know why, why and i just didn't know why and that, that was the scariest thing was like i was i was crying all these tears and i didn't know why and i had like i had so many thoughts going through my head so many memories so many just yeah and it was like what is going on so that's when I knew that it wasn't me. It was someone else triggering what was going on, you know.
0: And then you made the decision.
1: Yeah. And that, that was still to this day the best decision of my life. And I still stand by that to, to get rid of my leg.
0: So when you talked to your doctor and said, take it off, I'm good with this. Yeah. This is what I want. Yeah. How, how long did it take for the procedure to take place?
1: The decision was made on the 1st of May, 2013. And I was actually going down to surgery on May the 7th so seven days it it took to get this the actual i, I was really lucky because i had um a surgeon from the SBS, commander hand he was a leg surgeon i, I think that's quite funny myself but. <laughs> so yeah he was he was um an amazing guy i mean he kept going off grid for for a while and i didn't hear from him but i obviously knew what, what was going on with with his job and stuff but yeah so when he come back he was he was like he did actually tell me when I made the decision, he says, that's the right decision. Um, And I was like, yeah, that that sort of confirmed to me that I'd made the right decision because he'd seen me throughout the whole journey that I'd been in this Lizzo frame. Um, And he'd seen me from day one till the last day. And he was like, I always knew that this was going to happen, but I wanted you to find out for yourself. And yeah, I'm glad he did because it gave me all them insights to the stuff that how life would be if I hadn't, kept my if I kept my leg you know so so yeah May the 7th was another day in history for me that changed my life so that's the day I became an amputee.
0: So where did they cut at?
1: So I'm what they call a through knee amputee so I've got the best of a bad situation really so I've got a hole of my femur I've got a little bit of the femoral head missing where they chopped it because the infection just just started to get into it I've got a weight-bearing bone and that's why I walk so well it took me a long time, a lot of training sessions, a lot of training to be able to walk, but people don't necessarily see that. They just see you as you are, you know, they oh he walks really well. That's good. <laughs> you know. Right. But they don't they don't see the the actual effort that has to go into it for me to be able to walk that way and other people.
0: Your left leg through the knee amputee. Yeah. Talk me through cuz a lot of people talk about the phantom pains and feels and, and kind of what it's going on there both like with your nerve endings, which I'm sure from, it sounds like your injuries and the surgeries and everything. Like, I mean, your body recovering wise was probably happy when you finally cut it off.
1: Yeah. Luckily, cause I was so fit and, and at the time they, you know, that's, that aided in my recovery because I was constantly trying to get better, constantly trying to, to train, to compensate for the stuff that I was having to do. But yeah, that was sort of, my recovery rate was really quick so after my leg amputation I mean I was back running within three weeks three months sorry and then I was what? back riding but yeah I, was, I never got my first leg until about eight weeks after surgery because so obviously when when they it's a major surgery I, you know it's a right. losing a limb but, but um so they have to wait for the shrinkage to go down. And just for it to heal, basically, so it can actually take the scars to heal. But it's all knit up. So, yeah, it was, it was eight weeks before I got – it was seven weeks before I got cast for my first socket. And then it was like a week later I got – I went on to a thing called a KX06, which is a, a leg that just looks like a mountain bike shop. So it had no fancy gadget. It's like a learning leg, a learner's leg. That's exactly how I can describe it. No, no fancy gadgets, just a bit of metal with a mountain bike shock stuck in the middle of it. And, and that's how I learned to walk. And it was like, because I was seeing things at Headley Court. So our Headley Court is the British Services Recovery Center. So it's sort of like your, um, what's the place called
0: you get, you
1: guys in America?
0: Like VA, your, your Veterans yeah, Administration yeah.
1: Hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got, so that's our recovery center. So there they had, like, prosthetic centers and all sorts of different centers for every injury you can imagine. And it was literally, they had done, and I was like, wow, that's pretty
0: quick. Um, so learning so when to I, walk, and, and I understand you're saying that, like, you, you basically have this mountain bike leg. Did it take a while to learn how to walk with a prosthetic, or did you adapt fairly quick?
1: So they said to me, you're going to be walking on crutches for, you know, three to five weeks. And three days later I've been the crutches and start. I walked home. <laughs> what? Yeah, so that was my 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 girlfriend at the time, I just I drove I got back home, I drove home. You banged didn't tell on me the about door. This. Yeah, I banged on the door and then walked in. So <laughs> I was like that was three days after getting my first leg.
0: What a homecoming.
1: Yeah, that was pretty mental. She didn't even know either, so that was pretty cool. But yeah, and then obviously two so, why I did that though my my best friend was getting married um about a week after yeah about a week after I got my leg and i I was determined to um I tell you what, I wasn't getting married it was my goddaughter's christening and then I was determined to to walk into the church and I did it that was a week later the, that was the, my
0: the shock on people's faces I'm sure yeah
1: that it was it was like it was pretty cool. Um, but that just shows how powerful the mind is I think you know like if you can if you're going to do something do it with all your best of your ability Uh, that's sort of been my philosophy through life if I'm going to do something I'll try and do it the best I can and I think that that helped me through my recovery that sort of attitude because I don't know you 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 sort of got the same sort of mindset I think you can either sit at home and feel sorry for yourself or you can get on and make something out of it. Of the, of the situation you're in and I chose the latter you know. so it's the, the best of a bad situation
0: so what were the goals coming out of surgery obviously to walk get used to having a prosthetic but what were you going to do with your life I mean what was the next yeah. chapter for Mike Brown
1: I had no idea about life I didn't know where life was going to take me um, but my goal the, the one that got me through everything was I wanted to ride a bike again a month after having my leg off, I started making a foot peg for my bike that I, so I could go back riding so i so we we made a, a rotator a rotation of a footpeg that was magnetic and I bought a Clicktronic so I could change gear because it's my left leg and then pretty much as soon as I could walk I got on a bike but that was I rode three times and that was that's the last time I rode. But I wanted to do it just because I wanted to do it for myself and to know that you know I could still do it. Once I'd done it, that was that was good enough for me. Crazy, huh?
0: Kudos to you. <laughs> the power of goals, the power of the human yeah. mind to yeah, literally yeah. set something and have goals throughout your entire process and building towards them and ultimately when you accomplish them, most people would say, Okay, well, I'm gonna keep doing this, but There had to have been something to say, you know, this is it. I I did this. Yeah. I'm happy where I'm at. And this is, even though I can do this, this is probably not the best.
1: Yeah. Something clicked in me and thought, you know what? You've done it. You've proved to yourself that you can do it. That's all you need. Move on, you know, get on with with something different in life. Um, And I tried a few other things. And then this is where, obviously, I found... I found golf I was in a recovery centre. So the end of 2013, I think it was around October time, I seen a, a flyer on the wall because like all my days of sport were done. That was I didn't know where or what I was gonna do sport wise. I tried a few other things but nothing was was there. So I was at a limbo and I, I get you get the gist how important sport is to me in my life. <laughs> so um there was a I there was a, I just had a in fact I'd had another little operation so I was in recovery uh, at Tedworth House and I seen a poster on the wall for the OnCourse Foundation and I was like what's that because there was someone hitting a golf ball underneath it so I spoke to my recovery officer and he just said yeah it's a it's a golf charity that helps injured servicemen rehabilitate through golf and I was like sign me up and that's pretty much where my golf journey started and that was yeah that was onto another
0: chapter then you know so we're in that chapter
1: oh yeah i'm just i still feel like i'm still starting another a chapter um we got a lot more to go yeah so
0: absolutely a, it's a big yeah.
1: book yeah it's definitely gonna be a big book this one i got i've got some good feelings
0: what were you like when you were first starting useless
1: <laughs> absolutely useless like i remember I went to a one day tester center in um, a place called Dummer, which was near where I lived at the time. Um, so it's just like a golf center there, and they had a range. So I met, that was the first time I'd met John Simpson and Ben Simpson, who obviously John's the founder, now MBE. That was pretty, pretty cool for them to be there on my first day. Um, so yeah, and that's pretty much, we went straight to the range after that little meeting. I think I tried. 15 20 times and missed the same ball every time <laughs> so i had 15 swings and not even hit a ball but yeah that was that was pretty and then sort of i hit one ball and that was me hooked. probably went 20 30 yards but it just went and i was like do you know what i can actually do this there's something here i can i can put into my recovery and a little light bulb clicked on and thought yeah you know let's give it a go so a few months later I went to a three-day one, which was at Brocket Hall. And that was pretty much my first ever experience with the OnCourse Foundation. So, and, you know, we've met some to that day. I'm still friends with some people that were first-dayers as well, which, you know, is amazing. That was at Brocket Hall. So that was in October 2013. It was my first three-day event for, for OnCourse.
0: You started going to a couple of these lessons days put on by OnCourse and then mm-hmm. you got the bug what what was golf and what was how did it play into your life did you start going to the range more or did you how deep did you get into it right away
1: right away i got into it deep like i there was there was just something about it that i loved but i never i never took up golf as an amputee apart for anything apart from socializing meeting new people um because but prior to that you know I hadn't really left the house for a long time and it it genuinely did give me a new lease of life I think I said on 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 the other day it's like a cliche with these things but golf definitely saved my life not not necessarily physically saved it but mentally saved me into a place where I'm in a I'm loving life so yeah it was it was pretty special because I used it as a as I would a job um I thought you know I can I can enroll this into my therapy my my mental and physical therapy so i was getting up going to the gym you know normal time as i would in the military doing my thing and then i was going to the range and then just using it as a job you know i would go to the range eight nine in the morning depending on weather in this country um stay there till dinner time have dinner go back out and do something different and then go play nine holes and that was pretty much my daily routine for a year and that's how I used it for therapy. And then I was meeting other people through the on course, setting up games, playing with members. So I joined a club as well. So I got my first, I got my first handicap in um, July 2014. from twenty or
0: 28. That's what I got. 28. Yeah, that was, yeah, in July 2014, that was. So you were out there for eight months, just yeah. beating balls. Oh, did you have help? Were you taking lessons? Was there other people? Te- teaching you what what you're doing wrong
1: no not well there was uh, so I was doing the on just at the on course right um I never had a coach I never had anything like that um and so the on course at that particular time had three coaches one was Alistair Barr Di Llewellyn and Richard Harrison so all three of them have got amazing experience in their own quotes I mean Alistair you as a PGA bro you couldn't get anything more higher, you know he's he's like royalty so to have him teaching you you know it's it's pretty special and then yeah so i would go to the events and then go back practice what i got taught go to another event practice what i got taught and it, was, it just went on from there and, and i became really really hooked on it and that was that was pretty much where we went so you got good uh it took me a while like 18 months to get to scratch. <laughs> That's so, really good. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty mental. But, um, yeah, it was, It was. I'd just like to say, once I get my head around it, I just, I want to be the best I can.
0: So, 18 months. You played in your first Simpson Cup in 2014. Yeah, at Congressional. Was that your first golf tournament? Yeah.
1: Yeah, apart from, that was my first ever sort of competition. That was, like, for for golf yeah so what place huh
0: what was it like coming to congressional and, and then playing in that first cup i wish i could
1: go and do it again now knowing what i know about golf because at that that at the standard i was in to be fair yes i qualified but i wasn't good enough to be at that course if that makes sense i didn't feel like like if i went back there now i'd appreciate everything that was there because I because I didn't know much about what it was or what congressional was and how prestigious it was, I didn't really appreciate the whole big thing. Obviously, I appreciate it now because looking back, like I was just in awe with everything that happened there. But I even I know I'm in more awe now about it if that makes sense. In America, they do you do things right, don't you? You know, it, it's like everything bells and whistles, and it's just the way that we were sort of welcomed was just that resonated with me for a long time after, after I got back from congressional because I didn't fully realize how welcoming the Americans were to veterans. And it was just like blew my mind, to be honest with you. So yeah, that's the start of my Simpson cup and my pretty much my golf sort of career because that competition spurred something in me to, you know, I like this, this, you know, I like this competitions. I like this atmosphere, meeting the people. So, yeah, that that sort of gave
0: me another drive to pursue something. And it motivated you to get better. Massively, yeah. And that you did. So, since 2014, have you missed a Simpson Cup?
1: Um, only because I missed 2019 at St. Andrews. Only because I had European Tour Q School come up. Um, so yeah, that was, that was why I missed, missed that one. It just coincided.
0: When, when did you make this transition from, okay, Simpson cup, well, really starting golf (laughs) to first Simpson cup to getting really good to like, there's this golf world out there that you probably weren't familiar or in tune with prior to, to like making the decision that, you know. I'm not only gonna play in adaptive events, but like I'm gonna turn professional and, and I, I'm just as good as somebody that has all limbs. So
1: I it was sort of a decision that I'd made. I like I had no incline of, of this of being a pro golfer. I had no incline of making anything out of golf apart from, like I said before, making new friends and the fellowship and camaraderie that it gives you exactly exactly because you know as well as i do when you leave the military everything like that goes right so the on course to me is like a new unit you know that that's how special it is to me and golf was a way of sort of airing how important that is to everyone so you know that's why i decided to turn pro because there was no one really apart from chad who was in america who was obviously in America. There was no really in the world spreading the word of how important golf can be or not just physical, but mental health. And, you know, that was sort of a little drive for me to think, you know, I can sort of help people here. I can not necessarily inspire people, but if that's, that's what people think, then, you know, that that, that's the job done, isn't it? You know, if they can, if we can help one person change their life through golf, then that's amazing. You absolutely are inspiring people. Thanks. But, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to to give other people the opportunities that I've had through golf.
0: When did you turn professional?
1: So I turned professional July 2016.
0: What did that entail for you? Did you think, so, yeah, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get in the club business, or was it, I'm gonna go play?
1: Go play. That's all I wanted to do was go play. I think it was at first. It may be a little ego thing, just to prove to not necessarily everyone but myself, that I was still worth, you know, I still had something in me that I could, that competitive side, that I was still able to compete with anyone on on any level.
0: Well, where did you start competing at then?
1: Uh, so I went to Spain. So I went and played. My, my first pro tournament was in Spain um, on a thing called the Gecko Tour, which is a satellite tour that just in mainland Spain, Europe. Um, and then I progressed from there to a few other tours, how are the results early on? My first result was shocking, <laughs> but that was just difference between amateur golf and professional golf. It doesn't matter what level of professional golf. It's such a level at three, four, five steps up from any amateur tournament, a bit nervous. Um, I think I shot like three over my first ever tournament, which wasn't bad. But then then the, the sort of, the realization, right, I've got to go another 10 steps. And that gave me an, another new goal to progress. You know, I'm on probably the sixth step now. So no, not even that, probably maybe the fourth or fifth step to where I feel like I'm, I can be. I've got a lot more to give and a lot more to learn yet.
0: Did it feel like golf was giving you an outlet? It was your a passion that brought fellowship and camaraderie to you. Did it when it became your job, your profession? Did it change at all
1: um no because i sort of still had the the on course foundation i still had that grassroots golf of being out with friends being out with fellow people that were in the same situation as me the other aspect was the the fact that i felt well you know what it's life in the military we call it self-induced pressure right yeah I put so much self-induced pressure on myself because I didn't want to let people down that were there for me and and stuff like that, which, you know, you know, so I didn't because I was out there doing it. Um, I was out there getting the results and it it just worked for me because I could still, no matter what happened in a tournament, no matter what happened, I could still go back and see, see my mates and play golf with the on course. Yeah. That was pretty special to take that away, you know?
0: What were you doing, kind of putting your team together then, early in those years in Spain, and and moving up through different developmental tours?
1: So the the the, the thing for me was I changed a coach, so I I got a a full time coach because obviously when I was seeing Die and and Alistair, I was seeing them sporadic times, and you know if I needed to work on something, then I'd have to to wait, you know, for, for an event to come up or something like that. So. That was a big thing for me just because that made me committed. You know, that, that made me like, right, this is my job now. I've got to, I've got to knuckle down and I've got to train. I've got to, I've got to give everything that I can. So that's what I did. Um, I'm now working with a, a new coach called Ben Emerson. You know, that was the biggest sort of change for me. He, was, he changed a little bit of my swing. Because as an amputee, I, you've, you've seen my swing. So when I rotate, I have to get my left leg out of the way so it rotates through. So we worked on a few things, a few exercises to make that stronger and make that better. But the biggest thing for me is in the last three or four months, I was struggling mentally. Coming out of lockdown, coming out of not playing, etc., etc. I was struggling mentally. I started not to enjoy golf. But then I found through one of my sponsors Bushnell, I've now got a, a new mental coach who's called Jamie Glacio. He was the, the mental mastery but he's in Australia and he's just gave me a few little things to do training wise uh, on the range off the range thought processes and I've never enjoyed golf more So that just shows to me how important mental is rather than physical. He's changed my game in a few months and it's so remarkable but yeah that, that's pretty much. Where
0: we at you know we talked a little bit about therapy and counseling during the hard times that you had and and really when things were looking very bleak prior to procedure did you continue therapy once you had the procedure done
1: no i stopped
0: you thought those are old problems i have them fixed now that was all caused because of this bum leg that now's gone I don't need yep. that anymore
1: exactly that you hit the nail on the head You know, that was probably the worst decision I made, not carrying on with some mental therapy, because I have noticed a lot of old stuff rejuvenating in me.
0: We all do it.
1: Yeah. It's mad, isn't
0: it? Yeah. You don't realize, I mean, it's hard to even really say what what it comes comparison to it is, but when you have struggles, when there's things that you're working through, whether they're, they're good problems or bad and dark problems, you know, it's not a, uh, you know, your brain and your heart is a a car. You need to routinely conduct maintenance on it And make sure that everything's still running it's not something that you can you can get a quick tune up and put it away and you don't need to pull it back out until years years and years and years later because ultimately probably by that point in time it's a little too late yeah like
1: back in back in the day mental health like I said wasn't really a thing and I just thought it's just me being not necessarily something wrong with me but I just didn't know the mental health side yeah that's like a big big thing not just in golf but i think in every day i mean like like you said it we don't work enough on it i mean the brain's the biggest muscle in our body right the biggest cells or whatever and we never train it we never teach it how to behave we never sort of then if we feel bad oh uh, we feel bad i'll be right tomorrow but why do you feel bad why you know what's making you feel like that and how if you feel it again how can you sort of help yourself to get out of it
0: you're also working on both sides of it you're working on through your recovery process and and dealing and fixing old feelings and old wounds but also you're hyper sensitive and want to perform at the highest level as a professional in your craft and that like your brain needs to be as fine-tuned and as sharp as you possibly can Hundred percent.
1: Like I know I noticed it when I was before I started working with Jamie. That the only way I can describe it is you know when you first wake up and you just feel all dizzy, you feel like just cloudy. My I had constant brain fog, that's that was the, pretty much the only way I can describe it. And then yeah, we had to work work away out of why it was happening and how to get rid of it. So I think I'm out of out of it now. Well I, I am out of it now. Because my, my golf is you know it's it's probably playing some of the best golf I've played ever at the moment
0: how much of that was induced by covid and just kind of being the world yeah. and everything stopping for a, over a year
1: pretty much hundred percent I think it was it was one of them where everyone was in the same boat and the, the worst thing is there was there is nothing that we could do about it it's it, it's something that's out of our control and it was the most frustrating times for everyone, wasn't it? Like, it was,
0: it was awful. Again, we want to talk about like goal and task oriented people when there's no end date, there's no, nothing that you're building to. What are you doing?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like what forgot to train for There's when, you know, could be a year, could be three years, could be five years, no one knew. So it sort of, it just stemmed from, especially in England, because we, I don't know what it was like there during lockdown, but we literally, everything closed. There was no golf course open. There was no ranges open. Like, if you have a look at my Instagram, there's people that I built a net in my garden with a duvet. (laughs) I mean, that's that was what got me through lockdown. So I was just hitting balls into a duvet for, for, I don't know, six months. I went through four duvets, mind. (laughs) So... But yeah, that that was the sort of the situation we were in. It was awful.
0: It's funny. I was talking to some of my other buddies that, that live in the UK. And, you know, I was deployed still all the way up until June of last year. Came home from my last deployment. And I hmm. had some some British soldiers working for me. And they all were, uh, were sc- scouring the internet trying to find hot tubs. I was like, what the, <laughs> what the hell are you guys doing here? Like, what, what's the deal with the hot tub? He's like, hey, the hot tub's all the rage right now back home. Yeah. Well, what do you mean, he goes, well, you know, summertime, usually we all have, we can go on holiday, we can go down to the beach, we can go play golf, we can swim, and now you can't do any of that. Everything is shut down. So whatever yeah, with- you want, whatever whatever you can possibly bring to your home that is going to be a release, something therapeutic, so home gyms, or just for us to relax and and get in water. He's like, you can't even find a hot tub now. They're on back (laughs) order for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I was like,
1: I built a home gym in my garden. And then like the reason I had a duvet was the fact that I could not, it was the same as a hot tub. I could not get a driving net. For like three months, there was just none in the country. It seemed like everybody took golf up at, 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 in lockdown to play in their gardens. It was um, it was crazy.
0: Where are you at right now? Not only on your golfing journey, but as a professional, because I think we're we're gro- glossing over a a major accomplishment that you've had this year, uh, as well as something that you're building up towards.
1: Yeah. So um, I feel like. I'm just touching the surface of, of my golf at the moment. Um, I, I'm in that stage now where I feel I've got a good game and it's going to start taking me somewhere pretty special pretty soon. Um, but this year sort of in the UK has been been quite hard because of travel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I was lucky enough to get to play on a few of the, the European tour events this year and qualify for the race to Dubai. So that's pretty much my next goal. I fly out there on the 12th, I think um, I'm going to go out a few days prior to, before I meant to be there just because I won't be able to play much in the UK. So we can go out there practice, practice um, and yeah, see what, see what we can do out there.
0: You're so nonchalant about this whole <laughs> thing. It still blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. It's um,
1: yeah, it's pretty cool. I just, I'm quite a, a humble person, I suppose. I just, I'll see when
0: I get there, you know? So what European tour event did you play in or have you played in?
1: Uh, so we we got to play in the Welsh and Irish open part of the Edgar stuff, which was at Celtic Manor and Galgong castle in the, the Irish open. So that was uh, the one that I didn't. So check this out for a story. So, I needed. I didn't know this at the time, but I needed to birdie one of my last two holes in the Irish Open to qualify. And I, I didn't know this at the time. And I'm, I just missed a birdie on 17. And then 18 was a par five. And it was, I think, like 580, something like that, from, from where we were. And I, I hadn't, no one was really going for it in two um and my dude that was like helping me at the time sort of didn't tell me that I needed a birdie so i had an iron in my hand because uh, so the hole so there's all water along the side of left left of the green and like quarter of the way back down the fairway so no one was really going for it because it was a, a tight lie into the into the green and I had an iron in my hand, and I don't know what came over me, but I thought, do you know what? I may as well hit I had like 268 to, to the flag, and I thought, do you know what? I've got nothing to lose because I thought I was out of it. I didn't think I qualified. So I, I just thought to myself, do you know what? I've got nothing to lose, and I just hit probably the best three-wood I've ever hit in my life. It was the most carefree, easy swing ever. And it just went arrow straight to where my target was. And it came around 10 feet behind the pin and I made a birdie and that got me into Dubai. That's
0: incredible.
1: (laughs) Mental, isn't it? Yeah. But if I'd known I wouldn't, I would have hit the iron, but because I didn't know, I just hit, like I say, the most carefree It's almost as if I didn't care where it went. And I just hit it as hard as I could. And I didn't care where it went. And it just stayed straight at my target. And I was like, oh, I could be all right. Got out there and everyone was going mental. And like, there was only about seven or eight people that got got onto the green in two all week. So I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And then I just missed my eagle putt, made birdie. And then some. someone from um, from uh, uh, Tony Bennett was come up behind me and said, well done, I'll see you in Dubai. And I was like, hey. Eh? And I, I was like yeah that birdie just got you into Dubai and I I was like wow (laughs) I didn't even know (laughs) so yeah it's pretty cool
0: so you're gonna go over a little bit earlier part of that is because you're dodging weather right now but what is the plan leading up to it
1: um well I've just pulled out I was meant to be going to, to play in the South African Open um but I've literally just pulled out of that because I wouldn't be able to go to into Dubai having come from a red list country So that's that's actually worked out all right because it now gives me more time to prepare um, for for Dubai. So I'm going to go out there and play probably three or four days before to get ready for the tournament, just to get used to the heat. I think it's like thirty eight degrees out there at the moment. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. Like ninety something. Yeah, ninety five. Yeah, it's hot. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna go out there and play. Get just get used to it, get climatized, and just get used to some numbers and just because the ball goes a lot further out there. So just get used to some numbers and yeah, hopefully we can do some business this year. Yeah, I'm so excited for you. Yeah, I'm, be I'm like, yeah, I'm 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 proper excited about this one. It, like I don't get
0: excited over a lot, but this one. I'm pretty excited about it. Any other events outside of that for the rest of the year?
1: Uh, No, that's pretty much what I'm going to be aiming for now. Um, And then I've got another new chapter starting in December um, because I've just enrolled for my PGA. So I'm going to be doing that. Um, So that's another new ticket I'm going to hopefully have further down the line.
0: So what are you going to use with that? Or what's the, what's the thought process behind it?
1: So thought process is longevity. Um, well, like we were talking about earlier, I know how golf is so important for any disability. And I don't know what it's like in America, but over in, the, in here in the UK, there's not many places that you can sort of go to with a disability by a disabled person that knows what you're going through. So, you know, never know down the line, there could be some sort of disability program or some sort of disability academy to help people get through anything they're going through in life.
0: You know, we talked a little bit about the differences in kind of the views in America versus in the UK on disabled people. Yeah. And, you know, it is kind of crazy. I think from having the conversations with you guys, specifically members of the the GB team on the Simpson cup and you know, there's some just crazy, crazy comments and views towards not just people who might have a limb amputated, but overall the things yeah. that you guys deal with on a daily basis.
1: Yeah. It's um, the, the UK is very prehistoric in that aspect compared to America. And I, I mean, we, we call it, we're in the Vietnam stage of, of the way, we are compared to America. Um, it, it, it's it's getting better, but it's nothing. I mean, you you guys, you, you lead the way in, in disability. I mean, you've got everything sussed over there. Whereas we're still in the old ethos of if you've got a disability, you don't really matter.
0: What, why is it like that?
1: I have no idea. It's It's like Yeah, I just have no idea, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's places here that are amazing, and there's people that are amazing. But there just needs to be more of it, and it needs to be more accessible to a lot more people. And I, I think that's something that needs to be sort of addressed or helped through things that we can do over here.
0: I think that's part of the reason why, on course and everything that John Simpson stands for and does is so phenomenal. Yeah, like, doesn't, he doesn't have to do that.
1: No, he he's he's so unassuming. John is. I mean, he's changed so many lives, and he doesn't. He does realize it, but he doesn't know to the extent that to the the effect that he's had on on soldiers. And it's, it's incredible that what he's done and how big the Simpson cup is, is just, it's, it's pretty special, I think.
0: If I asked what is John and his, his family, but really the boys, what do they mean to you?
1: I don't really have to think a lot about that one. They, they mean everything, I think. I mean, they're such an amazing family and we are, you know, they've sort of integrated us into their family and likewise, you know, they, I treat them like family because you know that's how special they are. Yeah, it's it's pretty emotional to to talk about what they've done and how much they've helped people. Without you know sounding cliche to them, but yeah, they've they've changed a lot of lives.
0: So you work with a lot of cool companies, and you mentioned Bushnell already. But who else is part of this process with you, and and makes it not just your day to day life, but your competitive and professional life possible? Yeah, there's
1: there's some Special people that look after me and you know without them, none of this would pretty much possible but so yeah it's I work with um Roger Wolf who is head of UMaX golf and he supports me with sketches and Bush and all but there's one man that's very special and he's um Jan telensky oh. who is an amazing bloke in his own right he's helped me through everything through thick and thin and he's and he's one put per, one person that actually. Cares what I do, and he stands by everything that I do. So uh, I'm really, really lucky to have him on on my side. And obviously, I'm with Mizuno, um, so they take care of me with equipment and everything I need there. And I've actually got an American belt sponsor called Dogleg Reaper Belts. Um, they're unreal belts, by the way.
0: Are you trying to get me to buy belts here? What is this? Have you not seen them?
1: No. Oh, mate. So. You need to look at dogleg reaper belts. They're a bloke called Will Stokes, who's in Tampa Bay. Honestly, they're the... You know the ones at the Simpson Cup? Did yeah. you see them? Yeah. Yeah, they're dogleg, they're dogleg reaper belts. So they're just a ratchet system, any design you want. You should get... You should, in fact, let me sort out with them, I'll talk to Will and get you a no-laying-up one, mate. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> That'd be really cool. Or your unit sign. Yeah, or... Yeah. Anything like that, I'll I'll um I'll get them to, to hook you up with one. But they're yeah they're unreal mate. They're just like a ratchet system that yeah they're just really well made. Um so yeah and I'm obviously with Max Gold Protein, they're a nutrition company that helped me out. But yeah I'm pretty I'm very very lucky to have the people behind me and obviously the, the OnCourse Foundation.
0: We talked a little bit earlier about this new golf cart initiative and, and some the a company that you're working with. You wanna give them a, a shout out and kind of walk through what their what the plan is, what the overall goal and hopefully the end state is for getting some buggies out there to the right people who need them across Great Britain. Yeah. So there's
1: a, a new company. Well, I say a new company they've been around forever, but they're they're new to me. Golf Cart Europe who are a company that are trying to start a program in the uk to help disabled people with golf carts? so the initiative for them is to get a golf cart in most golf clubs in the uk or as many as possible to help d- disabled people play so it, it was a big thing for me when i first started this is why i was on the range so much because you buy your membership etc etc and then you know for for someone I'm really lucky because I can walk quite well but there's a lot of people that struggle with walking not not necessarily with amputations but just in general that are disabled and you know if you go out and play around a golf that's an extra 20 25 to 30 pounds every time you play so the initiative that they're trying to get is if you if you're a registered disability golfer and there's a there's one of these golf carts at you know your club you can just register and sign up for it and you know they'll they'll help you out with a cart for that day so that's that's the sort of goal that they're trying to get to
0: i guess i i had never realized the totality and what is different between the way that i play golf versus the way that you or anybody else that i saw playing golf yeah and swings look the same some look a little different. But moving around a a golf course and hills and slopes and specifically down slopes, what the difference actually is. And I think, you know, I had the opportunity to play with, you know, a couple of you guys up at the creek, the most recent Simpson Cup that was on Long Island a couple of weeks ago. And watching you guys move around the course and try to get up and down hills and work some shots from, from different lives is phenomenal. And and I played in the program with with Ian Bishop, or Bish as everybody else calls him. A, absolute legend in his own right, but he, he's a, a double amputee, both of them uh, above the knee. And without thinking of how is he going to get from the cart path down to the green, and then realizing that he he can't, it's not like he can put weight on the balls of his feet and go down the slope. He's got to go down yeah.
1: backwards. Like the 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 stuff he does is, I mean, you, it, it's mad because like you say that I'm inspiring, but he he inspires me, and people like like your guy Nick. I mean, he was hitting a ball 210, 220 with one hand with right. no leg on one arm and I'm like that to me that's inspiration to want to get disabled golf out there even more because looking at him and I'm like man there is nothing wrong with me <laughs> do you know what I mean exactly. it's like geez what 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 they do and like every time bish hits a ball i'm just amazed how he does it i mean like it's bad enough on one leg but having no legs especially no knees as well i mean like I can just take my hat off to them guys it's it's phenomenal, and regardless of how they play, they're doing it, you know,
0: yeah, a hundred percent i i mean I felt uh not just like in, inspired but motivated to, yeah. to make Very me lovely. you know play play better golf because you see their enjoyment it's they're, they're, it's yeah. not a limitation they they've completely adapted to new life and and find the joy in it no matter what the challenge is and it made me feel motivated and willing to fight on and and play better and practice more and and hopefully have a little bit better golf results but also made me feel horrible at the same time because I am the guy from like the center of the fairway that if I might miss hit an iron shot by the littlest, I'm like, Oh, huh. you know, yeah. I, I slipped today. Slipped. Yeah. <laughs> I have no, all my excuses are taken <laughs> away from me when you play with this. It's
1: mad, man. Like the, the, some of the shots I've seen in play and I'm like, how, how did you just do that? And it's, it's same with all the guys i mean some of the some of the things that they that they're able to do is just unbelievable
0: so what's the overall end state here for me or for for you for me
1: i want to be as best as i can i um i mean i feel like i've only just hit hit like somewhere of my potential and yeah my my goal Maybe not this year, maybe not next year, but one one time, you know, I want to get a full card. And then, yeah, was, the end goal is to be possibly playing in America at some stage. Because I'm I'm getting a, I'm getting like a little bit older now, so senior tour maybe.
0: <laughs> no, nah, you still got plenty of good golf left in the tank before we talk about senior. Yeah. Kid school.
1: Definitely, but um, but yeah, next year obviously Q School done this year so next year definitely back to Q School I'm just going to work my backside off again and and yeah just just enjoy the process and see where we can go and hopefully inspire more people to 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 take up the game of golf
0: absolutely well mike i appreciate it it's been an absolute honor and pleasure getting to know you the last couple of weeks and You know, you got us and the entire company on your side just rooting you on and wishing you nothing but success. But even if that success isn't quite on the golf course, what you're doing, everything else in your life is making a difference. And I thank you for that as a fellow veteran but really just motivating thousands of other people that you can pick up golf and it's going to provide you an excellent activity and, and sport that you can do for your entire life. But if you set your mind to something, you can accomplish anything.
1: Definitely. Thanks so much. That means a lot to me. So yeah, I'm very privileged to be where I am and the people I meet at the moment. So thank you very much. I didn't realize how big no laying up was in the UK. It's massive over here. Like, yeah, so it's, um, you know, I put a thing on Facebook yesterday of my bag was on the range in the usa and one of your mates that i used to play with on the european amateur tour messaged me says hey dude did no laying up no they've got what you've got one of their towels i was like yeah i said cody gave it me he went mate is that the military guy that's just started in america he knew all about you i was like that's pretty cool